You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy discovered chumpacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and thank you for joining me on the very first Tony Awards bonus episode of the year. I have with me Ryan McPhee, who's going to be joining me in just a minute. He's the managing news editor at Playbill, and we're going to talk about what's coming up and what's been happening on the Broadway scene. It's been a quite a busy season so far, and so I'm so glad that you are joining me as we dissect who we think might be getting some Tony nominations come April. We're going to be covering a lot of the shows that are out currently, but also give a preview of shows that have yet to open. And we're going to be covering plays and musicals, and including a few acting moments here and there of people that we think will be recognized by the Tony Awards. So without further ado, join me as I sit down with Ryan McPhee, at the Playbill offices in New York City. Ryan, thank you so much for inviting me to Playbill. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> I know, you are actually our first guest to come back onto the show. Oh, well, I'm honored. Yes, and well... <laughs> we have Andrew McArdle and Donna McKechnie to thank for that. This is true, yes. Yeah, uh, a week or two ago, you and I, we bumped into each other again at 54 Below, uh, which is a, a cabaret space here in the city. And Andrew McArdle, who I performed with doing Annie, as well as Donna McKechnie, they were doing like a duo cabaret performance, and uh, yeah, we both got to see it. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I had heard, obviously, Andrea sing before in the show, but I had only seen Donna McKechnie like on clips and stuff, but mm -hmm. had never actually heard her live, and it was great. To, yeah, and it was really special to like see her dance and sort of do her own sort of like recreation of the music in the mirror choreography right, on right. a tiny stage, but it was still so special. Yeah, because both of them basically reprised a lot of the songs that made them famous, obviously from Annie and then from a chorus line. Uh, but but then they also incorporated some nice duets that I thought were really good. Uh, my favorite was they did Everybody Ought to Have a Maid right. from, uh, from Forum, Forum. Right, yeah. yeah, which which I thought was really really. And they changed funny. the pronouns on that. Right, they changed the pronouns. You know, you know, he instead of she's, which I thought was very which, very funny. Yeah, I I would apply to be Donna McKechnie's houseboy probably. Oh 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 yes yeah yeah I th I think that would be I mean because they both they both seem like they were having a good time on stage which always is uh, is fun for mm -hmm. us in the audience <laughs> yeah well speaking of having fun on stage 
We are here to talk about uh, the 2018-19 season. Kind of a, this is kind of the midpoint, a uh, yeah. little, little past the midpoint, and shows have already started to close. Shows have yet to open, and so wanted to kind of get a taste of the the Tony Awards season and kind of how it's shaping up for uh, for this year. Never too and, early for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It's never too early to talk about Tony Award buzz. And, and so I, I, I feel like we should start with the shows that have already closed. Okay. And so I, I, I think for me, t two of the, the bigger ones or more notable ones are ones that didn't really, they never really found an audience. One of those would be getting the band back together, mm -hmm. which I think lasted a month. So it, it, that, it, yeah. it really came and went, and, and it found zero audience, obviously. Yeah, it just kind of came and went, which is, a, which is a shame. I had a couple of people I knew a part of that show, and it just, it just fizzled as soon as it came out. And then the other one, uh, Head Over Heels, right. that, that, that one just uh, closed a couple of weeks, uh, two, three weeks ago at the beginning of the year. And again, this is one of those jukebox musicals that tried to do something different, you yeah. know? Uh, and we, before we were recording, we mentioned jukebox musicals. Yes. And I think that that show was a really great example, a great example of how to do that successfully. Yeah. Because there are different ways. You can, you know, do the bio musical route and then you can fall into certain traps with that and there's a right way to do that. But to have an original story and not just an original story, but one that just felt so immediate and necessary and heartwarming and charming and really matched the energy of the music that they were celebrating. Right. Um, right. I, I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, because the basic idea of it was taking the music of the Go-Go's, mm -hmm. you know, the big uh, girl group from the 80s, and taking their music and, and putting it in kind of a Victorian-era feel. Uh, and, 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 and so it had some of that kind of haughty Shakespearean language-ish. Uh, I thought it was very cleverly done, and the way that they incorporated the music even though, yes, it was songs that we recognized, it still, I thought, fit and progressed the story. And didn't right, seem they to didn't like, feel like shoehorned like, in. Exactly, yeah. it wasn't like a stop, stand, and sing a, a fun song, and now get back to the story. Yeah, I thought they incorporated it really well. Yeah, and at the same time, I had just as much fun with that book material. Right, uh, right. Like you said, it was set, it's sort of like a medieval, like um, Arcadian kind of vibe to it. But right. the story itself is, super queer, it's very subversive about you know, the different couplings that you have. You have a lesbian couple, you have a person who, uh, like a deity of sorts that identifies as gender non-binary. Right. Um, and all of that sort of worked into this very arcane story, it was very fun to watch. Yeah, yeah, and so, I mean, the setting, while very archaic and medieval, the, the subject matter was very present and mm -hmm. very, very now, and so it was, you know, it was one of those things where when I first heard it, I was like, the go-go music? Right. And like, you know, in like the 1600s? Like, wh wh why? Mm -hmm. like, wh why do I need to see this? But, um, but I, d I did, got like, I think it was like either rush tickets or lottery tickets. And so I was like, all right, well, I'll go see this, you know. And I was thoroughly surprised, really, how much I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Because I, I went in with low expectations, which maybe, which is why I was so thoroughly surprised. And I came away, and the, the tunes, of course, I, I knew the tunes, but I was like, I was like dancing with it, you know, <laughs> in, in my seat and, and enjoying, and Bonnie Mulligan, she oh was gosh. absolutely hysterical and wonderful. And she basically plays uh, the daughter of the king, kind of, you know, there's kind of the pretty daughter and then there's the other daughter. And so she plays that other daughter. She was like 
this is who I am. Why don't you love me? Yeah, I'm, and, I'm everything. You and want. that's addressed by all the other characters too. She is yeah. the one who is sought after. She is the prize exactly. to all these suitors. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, just another example of how that show sort of like subverted expectations a little bit. Right. It kind of flips the, yeah. the traditional roles kind of on, on its head. Kind of. And there's one particular scene where she basically destroys the set. She like has this temper tantrum. Well, I'll just belting the <laughs> crap out of the go-go's. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, when it was done, I mean, I mean, before she could even finish, everyone was like on their feet, yeah. re ready to applaud. It was, it was so good. It was so good. But even whenever I went, it was maybe two thirds full. In the house. Yeah. And so I think that that was their problem for the five months or so that they yeah, were Yeah, and open. they stuck around for a lot longer than people were expecting, especially those who were looking at the numbers of the show on a week-to-week -week basis. Yeah. You know, it wasn't performing super well, basically since it started. Yeah. Um, it had terrific word of mouth for the most part, at least from the people who were seeing it. I just don't think it was enough to actually garner a paying audience for that long of a time. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad that they stuck around for a while, um, even past... Uh, what people were expecting because it got more people to at least hear about the show. It allowed them to perform the Thanksgiving parade, I think on CBS. Oh, right, um, right. They had sort of like mm -hmm. a performance there, different talk shows, things like that. And now the rights are being released um, for amateur and professional production. So I'm hopefully sure the show well will have regionally. a great life regionally, exactly. Yeah. And so with a show like that, that closes so early, you know, months before the Tony nominations, would would the show itself or Bonnie Mulligan, as we mentioned, would they really have a shot at getting nominated? They have a shot. It's definitely more of an uphill battle, though. Right. Um, you know, you have to sort of keep the show in the conversation in a way that's much harder when you don't really <laughs> have the closed. show to plug. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they're trying to do that, and and you know, it's being smart. It's, you know, you did a lot of press while the show's around, um, and then you pick it back up maybe. Uh, in April while all these other shows are happening. At that point, maybe Bonnie might do a cabaret stint somewhere. You know, other ways that you can be a part of the conversation and part of the theater scene as well, so people still have your name on their lips. When it comes to jukebox musicals, as you mentioned, another way, another route that they go are the, the biopics. You know, we had Sa Summer, the Donna Summer musical last, which uh, also just closed right. in December. And we have the newly opened Cher show, yes. which, are, which are almost weirdly identical in the fact that there's three actresses yeah. playing the, the, the title role. The structure is eerily similar, yeah. for sure. I, I didn't see Summer, but I have seen the Cher show. How do they compare as far as like setting up that structure and utilizing all three women as the character? Uh, I would have to say that it's much more clear in the Cher show. Um, I think the Cher show benefits from having its creator, or its subject matter rather, around. Um, and Cher was very active in the development of it. Yeah, and I, she was very vocal about it too, like uh, saying, you know, it needs work. I, like she would say that in interviews, which is kind of hysterical. <laughs> that she'd be like, it's not quite there yet. It's like, well, you open in a few weeks. <laughs> um, but having her there, I think, added a like a level of self awareness to it, where it didn't take itself too seriously. It was a very earnest telling of the story, sure, but it still allowed it to live in that camp land that you associate Cher with. Absolutely. Um, whereas I think Summer didn't benefit from that. 
uh, it was focused on you know celebrating her story, and I think it got a little lost in that at points, um, and it didn't really make a whole lot of sense as why you have three people playing Donna Summer. Well, see, I felt the same with Cher Show that I kind of got because Stephanie J. Block, I would say, is the, is the main one playing Cher, and then the other two play her at different points in her life, and. I could kind of see like when they went back to young Cher when she was growing up and then into the teenage years, having a different actress play that. But then once she's kind of grown up past that, I thought Stephanie J. Block could have really done it all. Now, I, I think that would have obviously put a lot more on her plate, obviously, mm-hmm. to, as far as singing and, and, and stage work. But at the same time, it kind of got muddied because there's several moments in the musical where all three of them are just talking to each other and kind of having a conversation about themselves. Yeah, and I loved that. And that was kind of the uh, the campiness. I mean, like, okay, I kind of compared it to... Do you watch Drag Race? I've, I've seen Drag Race. Okay. Uh, my favorite thing about Drag Race, which I watch religiously, is the moments where you have the queens, like, in the workroom or backstage or behind the scenes on set, whatever, um, and they are having either an incredibly earnest and heartfelt and truly meaningful conversation about something impacting the LGBT community. Or they're just having like the most glorious of reality television fights. And but either way, they're in like half drag and they have like the lashes maybe on and like they don't have the wig, they have the wig cap, and like no one's acknowledging how ridiculous everyone looks. And that was kind of the, the thing with Share Show. The entire time I'm watching it and I'm thinking, like, oh my god, this is so ridiculous, or wow, I'm like surprisingly moved by this. But at the same time, you have Stephanie J. Block in like full share drag. And not just in share drag, like I think she literally wore every outfit and <laughs> costume Cher ever wore. It, the, I mean, what is There's like 50 or 60 costume changes. Oh, it's it, absurd. It is so crazy. But and I mean, I, like, you would expect nothing less from Bob Mackie. N- no, I, yeah. mean, I mean, and the costumes are their own character. I mean, because... 100%. Because she never wears the same thing twice in any scene. And there's one song, I would say there's at least 12 costumes in this one number <laughs> where she walks on, she does a little riff, walks off stage, and 20 seconds later, she's in another... Bob Mackie extravaganza, yeah. But yeah, you have her, and then you have, not that it's just Stephanie J. Block as Cher, but then you have her talking to other people playing Cher. Yeah. It's absurd. Yeah, but you have Cher talking to Cher, talking about, well, girl, you should have done this whenever you were this, and like, well, why would I have done that? Because you did, the, and, and they're like having an argument. Yeah, but you know what? In the Cher show, at least it served a purpose. I'm yes. not gonna say it didn't serve a purpose in summer, that's not fair, but I thought it was clearer in the Cher show. It allowed you to get like a more in-depth view of how Cher operates, how she feels about certain instances in her life, and it really played up to like the "if I could turn back time" kind of mentality of the show. Right. Like I, I thought some of the most touching moments were when you had the younger iterations of Cher having the chance to revisit past moments right. again. I mean, I- with the foresight of current Cher. Yeah, because I, I, I do get your point that it's interesting kind of getting into the head of Cher, like like what she was thinking and, and the different struggles that she went through in her life and kind of how she dealt with those. So, I mean, that was interesting. But overall, for me, I think having three shares was, was clunky. It wasn't as smooth in every scene for me that it could have been. It was a bit more distracting than I think. Sure, but, that's fair. But, but at the same time, 
The other one, I mean, obviously Cher is the, is the thrust of that show, but the other one is the, uh, the cameo of Lucille Ball and then, of course, oh. Cher's mother, <laughs> and, uh, both, both played by Emily Skinner. Yes. And she, like, like you know, playing the mother, that's kind of Emily Skinner's wheelhouse of, of kind of the strong woman who's like, you know, who's going to tell you like mm-hmm. it is. But then all of a sudden she comes out as Lucille Ball in the full wig and, and makeup and dress from, from like her like 1970s Lucille Ball. Yeah, I have never gay gasped that hard in a theater. <laughs> the moment she says, please welcome to this age, Lucille Ball. And out comes Emily Skinner. I was not ready for full Lucille Ball regalia. Yeah, <laughs> I was not ready for that. And she was hysterical. It was spot on. Yeah, it was so good. It was so good. So, I mean, it, it, was, it was one of those shows where, you know, I had certain, and I thought that the second act was a, a bit stronger, I think, with its message than, than, than the first act sure. for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but at the same time, I, I had, had a fun time, and yep. despite any reservations or things that I thought you know, I would do differently, I still overall enjoyed the show. And I thought Stephanie J. Block delivered. Killed it. Yeah, yeah, she absolutely, I mean, vocally, she was spot on. I, I happened to hear her talk about getting that role. Mm-hmm. And, and, and she mentioned that one of the final steps was getting Cher's approval. You know, as, as you said, Cher was intimately involved with the production of this. And so she's in a studio, a small studio, just her and Cher and probably a few others, but basically went through the whole show, 70J Block as Cher, in order to get her approval. And, and she said that was really the most nerve-wracking process of the whole Understandably the whole, so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're like portraying someone who's sitting five feet from right. you. And, and not just someone, but one of the world's most iconic women mm-hmm. in, in entertainment. So, yeah. But from there, she mentioned that one thing was about her voice. She was like, I don't sound like that. And it was other people around shared said, yes, you do. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you do. So, so it, was, it was one of those things that... Um, Stephanie J. Block had to work a lot yeah, to, and I thought it, like, to get the voice. Mm-hmm. Especially in her vocals, her singing voice as Cher. I thought it was like a really beautiful blend of unmistakably sounding like Cher, and yet Absolutely. it wasn't, it didn't sound like an impression of Cher. Like right. there were still very much, you had those Stephanie J. Block isms in her voice. She has yeah. a very distinct, almost, I, I don't want to say Judy Garland-esque, but like there's a very specific like timber to her yeah, voice. Yeah, she has that, um, that resonates very strongly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, you still heard hints of that mm-hmm. throughout her performance, and I really admired that. Yeah. To, you have both simultaneously. We don't want to leave out the plays. There are obviously yes. <laughs> quite a few plays that, that, that have also closed. Uh, uh, American Sun and Waverly Gallery are probably the, the two biggest ones. Mm-hmm. I think American Sun did extremely well because it, yeah. it got good reviews, and I, I think that was a hard ticket to get. Yeah, and it was a limited run, right. which right. Right. It, it was meant to, to be the yeah. sort of urgency of the tickets, but then also it's not having like an untimely closing. A week before they closed, announced that they were going to have a Netflix adaptation. Right. So oh, oh, that's right. Yes, I so heard about that. So they're filming it in in February, and it's going to be sort of like a hybrid play movie kind of situation. I don't yeah. know entirely what that means, but I believe they are filming it on the stage, but in a very cinematic way. Okay. And not with an audience, so it's not just sort of like a filmed performance. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because the producers kind of felt like that. It was it was staged, but at the same time, it still gave it its cinematic 
element. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I assume that they'll they'll do something like that, and lifespan of effect. Yes. Which uh, with uh, with Daniel Radcliffe. Um, has closed. And plays are typically more limited engagements as well, so they're Absolutely. expecting that. It's not, especially in the fall too, because then they're making way for things to come in the spring. Right. Yeah. And so does that tend to affect uh, their Tony nomination process, especially if they opened in the fall, had their two or three month run, and then closed as opposed to those that are open in, say, March and April? A little bit. I think sometimes the conversation does lean heavily on the shows that have more recently opened when it comes right. time to announce the Tony nominations. But again, shows can be smart in how they make sure that they're a part of the conversation again as it comes time for those deliberations. Right. Because another one with a limited run that, that's currently open is Network. And that one's getting yes. extreme you uh -huh. know, uh, praise and a lot of buzz because of Brian Cranston's performance. And I think that one's it's going to like have a four-month run total by the time it closes or so, but it, it's definitely going to be closing before the Tony Awards as well. Uh, I think before the Tony Awards, but, but they uh, but, did but, extend but they at least last. through this, the you know, award season. Yeah, for, th through but, the yeah. nominations. Uh -huh. Yeah, they'll last through that. But I think by the time the Tony Awards come along, they will have uh, they will have At least on. for now. Who knows? Right, what right, right. Things could extend. You know, but To Kill a Mockingbird is another one that's obviously getting a lot of buzz. because. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't realized there is, I guess, this play out there of it. Yeah, there have been stage adaptations of it before. Right, but, and, but, they actually, and, and so why do you think this one is getting such... Is it just because it's Aaron Sorkin? I mean, that's part. And there, haven't, there hasn't been one on Broadway, first of all. And it is sort of a very specific interpretation of the show, so much so that there were legal battles surrounding mm -hmm. this production. It's framed a bit of uh, as like a memory play in ways you have older actors playing these characters. Um, and it's sort of seen through the lens of Scout. And a little bit of it is through the eyes of an older Scout being able to look back on how she perceived the situation at the time. Um, but yeah, I think the fact that it's Orion Sorkin is getting a lot of buzz. Um, it's Aaron Sorkin working with Jeff Daniels again, uh, who's right. playing Atticus. With these, do you think that those would probably be the two front runners in, in play categories, Network and To Kill a Mockingbird? That sounds right. Um, but, however, th we do have some other ones that are very strong contenders in there. Um, what the Constitution Means to Me, which is opening later. Oh, that's sure right. We'll that, to, yeah. that was off-Broadway and will now be opening. Uh, now, does that one have an open-ended run once it comes to Broadway? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's going to be limited. And then you have other new shows coming, like Hillary and Clinton um, and Inc., uh, which can very much you know, become a part of that mix in that category. And so on to musicals that will be, that will be coming. Um, I think the one that's open right now that has the biggest buzz would be The Prom. Oh, that's currently open? Right, that's, yeah. currently, that's currently open. And do you think that because of its message, because it has to do with you know, a teenage lesbian and going to the prom and, and being accepted or not accepted, do you think because of that, that message that that alone kind of sets it apart and, and gives it an edge over other more traditional kind of musicals? Mm, I don't know how edgy that is necessarily because we were just talking about Head Over Heels earlier right. and that too had a very, you know, smart present day feel to it. Right. Um, however, that doesn't have the benefit of currently being open. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that could set it apart from other musicals. Uh, what I think was really smart about it though was it was kind of twofold because you have that aspect of it, like the, the teen story, mm -hmm. um, but then you also have old school, big flashy musical with the other side of the story, which is the group of 
kind of washed up Broadway veterans. Yeah, yeah, the older actors coming in and and, and trying to assert that they're they're still relevant and they're still, you know, they can play all these roles and everything. Yeah, I I think it deals with that in a very, very humorous way. Mm -hmm. Um, In a surprisingly self-aware way as well. You see different sides of that. You see the frustration of someone like Angie Horror's character. Um, constantly being in the ensemble, waiting for that break to finally play Roxy Hart. Uh, but then you have like the pure delusion of Beth Bevel's character, Dee Dee Allen. Uh, who, is, who is so deliciously absurd, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, I love her character. It, it's so funny. Like, I, I, that's one of those shows that I've been recommending to people because I know that it caters to those kind of different audiences, but mm-hmm. also makes sure that it, it just feels so open to everyone, you know? Yeah. yeah. if we didn't bring up those that, that had mixed reviews, uh, King Kong. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I'm saying the word mixed to be kind. <laughs> um, it's, it, and, and speaking of reviews, it got, the, the reviews itself were bad, and then the reviews of the reviews also it got, was, got, 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 got coverage. Yeah, be, because people, and it, it, it was very interesting how it's one thing for for people who may not be in the business to, to say, why would you say something so bad about people or, or cut them down for their performance or this or that, you know, we, we need to celebrate theater. But it was surprising for people in theater who know how tough this business is and how reviews come and go, good and bad. But they were the ones who I thought were more up in arms than anyone. Yeah, it, it was a little strange and I, don't want to call out anyone in particular, but I do feel like there was a sense of the people that were calling out, you know, those types of reviews, like, mm-hmm. why are we cutting these down? Sometimes are the same people who are saying that we shouldn't have a King Kong musical in the first place. So it's kind of a you-lose-either-way situation. Yeah. You're not willing to give the musical a chance, but then you can't have anyone professionally criticize yeah, musical. So, you know, see, I'm very good when it comes to sticking to a point. I don't think we should have musicals like King Kong, <laughs> and I agree with the reviews that they were, it, it was bad. I mean, I mean, but 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 to be fair, I haven't seen it. I've only like read. But the, you have an opinion on it. Oh, of course, I have an opinion. <laughs> There's a huge ape on stage now. From all the reviews, the ape itself and the technology and puppetry of that was amazing. The and ape is awesome. Right, right. But then everything else. From, from all the reviews that I read, not just the, the New York Times, which is the one that got so much controversy, but all the reviews talk about the, the poor songs and poor writing and the bad book and then yeah, some overacting. The definitely upstaged virtually everything else about that show. Yeah. Um, I still had a fun time. Did I think it was a, a great show? No. Um, but I think it serves a purpose and it serves that purpose decently. Okay. Um, it's not the epitome of high art. I don't know if it's trying to be. So, so here, here's a question I have for you then. Does King Kong, did it need to be on stage? No. Okay. So it, it yeah, because that, to me But that's, Broadway is by design not built out of necessity. Yes, yes and no. I mean, I mean yeah, when it comes to like- Theater as a whole, the, yeah. the art of theater, I think very much is a necessary thing. But when yes. we're talking about Broadway, we're throwing commercialism into the mix. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, things have to make money. They want to win awards. They want they want to have a life on tours and regional. I absolutely get the commercial nature, and I want producers to make money because me as an actor, I want them to then make more 
stuff that I can be a part of. So it's it's that yin and yang of yep. it. So I want both, but at the same time, I, I just think, you know, we're, we're trying to turn all these movies and all these iconic stories and images and characters now into Broadway musicals. And I think sometimes it works, like once. You know, that's taken from a movie. It, it served that purpose and it made sense that that would now have a stage adaptation. Moulin Rouge is another example that's finally, finally, after all these years coming to, coming to the stage. But did King Kong need to be put on stage? It, it, it's like, to me, that's, that, that's when you're like just reaching for anything. Yeah, I don't know if Broadway necessarily was the right medium for a stage adaptation of King Kong. I kind of left being like, this is probably going to do really well in Vegas. Or something. <laughs> you, you know what right, I mean? Right, right. Um, but, I mean, I at least was intrigued by the prospect of how do you incorporate musical theater into a story in which one of its main characters is the not human and does not have right. a singing voice. Right. Um, and with that, then you focus on the character of Randero and how do you give her more agency and how do you sort of let this be more of her story. Um, so I thought it was at least interesting in how it attempted to explore that. I don't know if it was very successful in doing so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think there is a point to taking things that people are familiar with and how do we explore it in new ways based on the medium that we're presenting it in. Yeah, because if, if all the reviews are, are correct, they do talk about the, the technical wonder of, of the puppetry and how from this huge beast, you know, they were able to elicit emotion and the, the, the movement of it. And so maybe that in and of itself was an exercise in what can be accomplished through puppetry. Like a feat of stagecraft, you mean. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so that, maybe that in and of itself was, was a point and a purpose for it to, mm -hmm. to be on a stage. We'll see. So of course with me being a musical theater performer, that tends to be what I focus on. But obviously in the world of plays, you are much more well-versed. What, what's kind of standing out to you in the play world on Broadway? Uh, well, in addition to uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, which we've talked about, um, and, uh, and some network. Other, and network, yeah. uh, we've talked about uh, coming up Hillary and Clinton and Gary, uh, but we've also had uh, the London import of The Ferryman, yes. uh, which is still running on Broadway. Which and is actually one, one of the few plays that I've seen this Broadway season. Okay. Well, what did you think of it? I, it was, it's one of those where you just kind of sit back and just kind of let it flow. It's very, it's a very slow moving play. Like, and, and it all takes place over the course of, I think, 24 hours. Is it 24? It's or, or, a short period of time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's either a day or a week, but it, yeah, it takes place in a very short amount of time. And it's kind of very unexpected. I, I, I will just say the ending is not what I thought it was going to be at all. That's, oh, yeah, it takes a hard left turn yeah, in those that's, last that's all I'm 90 say. seconds. Yeah, I'm not going to give anything away. But I'm just going to say it's it's going along, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, oh, wow, okay, and then literally the last minute, you're one, you just sit there going, what just happened? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, yeah, and it's a bit of a journey to get to that point. It is a long play, yes, um, and it took a little bit of time for me to get used to a lot that was going on, both in terms of. Uh, sort of that pacing that you're talking about, the, the kind of slow burn mentality of it, right. but then also just uh, whether it be the dialect or the historical context of it, which 
despite having the last name McPhee, I did not. <laughs> uh, I was like, not I need to read a Wikipedia person. page. <laughs> uh, which I would recommend, you know, reading up on the troubles. Uh, right. But uh, yeah, once I was, you know, once I got locked into it, I was, you know, along for the ride. Yes, I thought yeah. it was stunning the way that it unfolded. Um, and it did not feel as long as the play actually was. No, no. I mean, because as it's going along, like the the performances are so riveting, as well as I think with it being in a single set also helped because it kept you focused on on where you need to go. It's not like it kept changing and you're like, okay, where am I now? It takes place in this one house. And allowed you that allowed you to really focus in on those dynamics yeah. of that family and who they were. Exactly. And I, I would say for a play, it has a bigger cast than a lot of musicals. Yeah, it's there's huge. like 20, 25 people in a play, which is unheard of. Yeah on Broadway. You know, usually it's five, six people and that's about it. So to have this entire family and, um, you know, uh, this Irish community coming together, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely one of those that I had heard was good but didn't really know why, and then I saw it and went, ah, that would be why people are seeing this. Mm -hmm. And it is uh, doing pretty well. It's, again, it was a fall arrival. Uh, but it is still riding that tide. Mm-hmm. It will be through award season, I am sure. A lot of the cast is leaving, however, uh, before you know we get into the swing of the Tonys and everything. Right, right. Um, so you have a new company going in there, but the show will very much still be around. So that will certainly help the play itself. Will that affect those original cast performances as far as whether they get nominated or not, if they leave? Uh, I don't think so. As long as people are still talking about the play, um, I think their performances will be remembered. We had talked about um, what the Constitution means to me. That went uh, started off-Broadway and is now coming to Broadway. Another one that had that same path was Be More Chill. That one is getting a lot of buzz. Now, this is another show that I, di- I didn't catch it off-Broadway, so hopefully once it comes to a Broadway stage, I can see it. But what do you think about it is, is capturing so many people's just fanaticism? Uh, it really, really tapped into that young theater goer, very savvy, social, socially, uh, digitally savvy person who gets excited about something and just has to talk about it with anyone else who will listen. And the engagement levels of people who are talking about the show is crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was in 2016, before it was even off-Broadway, it was the second most discussed musical on Tumblr after Hamilton. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the, the people who love it absolutely love it, and they talk about it all the time. And it has such a fandom behind it before it's even been on Broadway, and I can't remember the last time we've had something like that. Um, it's getting some comparisons to Spring Awakening in terms of like its fan base and the oh, way that they're engaging okay. with the show. But Spring Awakening was a little bit more of a slow burn. People were talking about it while it was off-Broadway, sure, but it did not have that fandom behind it in the way that this does. Yeah, and its use of the digital medium, I think, mm-hmm. is, is another reason why it's, it's a very current, very present uh, musical. Yeah. And, and why, because cause, like, Spider-Man tried certain things digitally and, and with projection and that kind of thing, and it seems like Be More Chill is, is going the right way about using it. Yes? Uh, I mean, I can't really speak too much of the design of the show itself, but um, I think it is taking advantage in general, whether it's in the production or in its outreach or its marketing, of 
being in this digital age. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's still going to have the, the goods. And and from what I've heard of the music, obviously, I, I've not seen it, but what I've heard of the music, it certainly sounds very, very now, very catchy, very Yeah. Pleasant, Joe so. Iconis, I think, is like the epitome of contemporary musical theater. And I don't mean that as a dig necessarily, but he just has that sound that you feel like is representative of musical theater now and today. Um, it's the kind of thing that when I, if I were a teen now, if I were a high school, like, that is very much something that I would be interested in because it would make me feel cool as a theater lover. You know what right, I mean? Like, yeah. It's kind of like, um, you know, Spring Awakening or Rent or, you know, it kind of feels like that kind of thing that people are, they feel proud to love it so much. And then some more, you know, rather more traditional musicals that, that will be opening. Uh, we have the revival of Kiss Me Kate. We do. Which is coming. And I mean, I love the musical itself. And have you heard anything about how this one may be different or take a new approach uh, to it? Well, Amanda Green is attached to sort of re rework the book a little bit uh, because to do Kiss Me Kate in a Me Too era, which is you know, talking about doing revivals or things like this in the Me Too era has become a little bit too much of a buzzword without people really exploring what that means. Right. Uh, however, it is something that does need to be recognized and uh, confronted if you're going to do a show like Kiss Me Kate that revolves around, you know, the... The male the female domination. Of, yeah, exactly. But, but, but I will say, as opposed to, say, like a... Um, like Carousel, Kiss Me Kate already starts with a very strong and in-your-face woman who, who doesn't take slack from anyone, which, which, I, which I think is the whole point of, of female empowerment. And, and so I think they already have a strong character to start with. No, I don't know if they would change her, but I mean the whole concept of, you know, taming of the shrew. Right. Like, is that something that needs to be tamed? Um, I think there's a different mentality to that now. And I was actually looking at um, sort of reviews and interviews from the past uh, production starring the late Maren Maisie right. um, and sort of how they talked about it. And I was reading it and uh, I was like, wow, this would play so differently in 2018, 2019. Hmm. Not just the musical itself, but the conversations that were being had back then about it. Yeah. Um, about how it's okay how he treats her in certain parts and things like that. And it's... Yes, whereas back in the 40s, that, that might have just been kind of wink and a nod kind of joke. And, and here, we're going to be a more visceral reaction to, to such outward display of, of, you know, putting down a woman, deservedly so. Sure. Yeah. yeah, and I'm glad, you know, that they are bringing someone on, and it is Amanda Green, yeah. uh, who's at least seeing what it means to take, you know, those dynamics on yeah. now. Um, I don't know, I, I, I don't think it's going to be something that's entirely revolutionary in how we look at a musical like Kiss Me Kate, um, but it definitely is something that's added to the conversation that we were talking about last season with like My Fair Lady and Carousel and what it means to put these shows on now. Right, right. And so when it comes to just the, the world of theater that we're in now and, and this era that we're in, then how much do you think especially revival works, how much do they need to, to change and adapt to the time as opposed to be a representation of when they were written? I think for both the creators and the audiences, it's a matter of understanding nuance um, that you're going to put these shows on and it's neither going to be a time capsule uh, because then it's like, well, what are you saying by doing that? 
like isn't wasn't this such a better time when we didn't have to worry about these PC conversations mm-hmm. or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, what is the point of showing that? And then two, you also don't need to radicalize or change the material really in order to explore how you can look at these stories through a contemporary lens. Right, right. Those conversations don't necessarily have to be spoken in order for productions to explore them. Because, like, you, you were talking about uh, the previous revival of Kiss Me, Kate, and how different it would be received or produced mm-hmm. now. Um, that, that made me think of Gigi, which was a couple of seasons ago oh, as right. well. Mm-hmm. You know, for a show like that to now be produced now. Now, I'll just say that I didn't really care for the production, and there were a couple of actors that I thought did horrible jobs. <laughs> but the, the one that I remember the most was Victoria Clark. Like, she stood out head and shoulders above, I think, really anyone else on stage. And this is not to demeaning one. This is more just to say how great and wonderful she was in her role, in her character. And I thought that she presented a wonderfully strong female character that that had heart and was beautifully acted and sung. And she is really the one that I remember most from that production. Mm-hmm. And she got the Tony nomination. <laughs> <laughs> and see, so other people also thought that. Um, but yeah, do you think that, that it will, going forward, it will affect the types of shows that are revived and that it'll it'll be more contemporary shows rather than, you know, maybe like from the 70s or 80s rather than going all the way back to 30s and 40s to a much different time of male-female dynamic and how how characters are written. No, I I think it just depends on uh, who's behind the production and how they're dealing with it. I don't think we're going to see like a diminishing of... Rodgers and Hammerstein, Lerner and Lowe, you know, that core of the golden age of Broadway. Yeah. Um, but there's also more from the musical theater repertoire, repertoire that you can bring into the mix as well. Right. Point. Right. Yeah. 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 Because I think that once we kind of got into the, to the more pop rock 60s, 70s, I, I, th- I think musicals started to take on a different flair to them. And, and I think that that those kind of musicals that we don't hear a lot from could be could start to be revived a little bit more and more. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I mean, looking at the only other revival we have this season, however, a revival of a musical, I should say, um, is Rodgers and Hammerstein show. It's Oklahoma, right? Uh, heading to Circle in the Square, recently occupied by Once on the Island, <laughs> um, just to bring it full circle in the square. See what I did there? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll leave. Um, But no, I mean, that is an example of taking something that, you know, you're not changing the dialogue, you're not changing the book material or the score, but you are totally looking at it from, in many ways, is something that feels like it can only be done now. And it's not necessarily setting it in modern time or anything like that. It's just really looking at the themes, like the darker tones of that show that have always been there, but that we don't necessarily immediately associate with that show, yeah. um, and taking them and really putting them at the forefront um, versus, you know, all those catchy melodies that you hear everywhere. Yeah, because you know? yeah, uh, everyone knows Not about to say that it's not going to have those. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's very much there, and those joyous yeah. moments are very joyous, but it's making sure that you don't shy away from why we're telling this story now. Yeah. And I think that's very smart. Because I think that, like, in all of m- musical theater, I think Judd Fry is one of the darkest and most sinister characters because it's it's so subtle. It's not like he's, like, 
you know, with, with a knife stabbing everyone and like, it's just this evil, but there's, there's like a, a creepy, awkward weirdness about him that, that makes him, I think, more sinister than, than a lot of current villains, quote unquote, that we, that we have in musicals today. It's, it's because it, it's, so, it's so pervasive of, of like his life, you know, mm-hmm. within, within the context of, of Oklahoma. It's like he just lives by himself and just lives with these thoughts that he has. And they're dark yep. thoughts. The floor creaks, the door squeaks. There's a field mouse a nibbling on a broom. And I sit by myself like a cobweb on a shelf by myself. So now moving forward into what's coming up, what do you see as like the the big productions that have yet to open that will probably make the biggest splash? Oklahoma, I think, is absolutely going to make a splash. Uh, I don't know if that will be a commercial splash. I'm very eager to see how that plays out because it's very much not a traditional commercial production of Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, Other things, uh, I'm very excited about Hadestown. I mean, that had tremendous buzz while it was off-Broadway and uh, will be coming here fresh from a run in London at the National Theatre. So I think that, and it's uh, directed by Rachel Chavkin and it very much has that kind of vibe that she brought to uh, Natasha Pierre in The Great Comet of 1812. It was incredibly immersive off-Broadway, so I don't know how they're going to sort of reinterpret the space once it's at the Walter Kerr Theatre. But I'm very excited about that. Um, Other things that I think can make a splash, looking at plays... Uh, two plays uh, are new and I think are going to be very buzzy and have certainly a buzzy cast. Uh, one is Hillary and Clinton, uh, which is John Lithgow and Laurie Metcalf. Um, yeah, because anything that Laurie Metcalf does is, is wonderful, at least of the stuff that I've seen her yeah. do. Yeah, because I saw her in Doll's House Part 2. That was, was that last season or the season oh, the before? The season before. Season before. And I saw her in Misery. Mm-hmm. That was a few seasons before that one. Right, right. And then I saw November, which was her and Nathan Lane. Uh-huh. So, I mean, basically anything that she does, she brings wonderfulness yeah, to Yeah, and it. she was a sounding through Tall Woman just last year, too. Right. So, oh, that, mm-hmm. I never got to see that. I heard so many good things about that production. That's great, yeah. Um, so I'm very excited for her to come back to the stage. So you have that, and then you also have Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus, right. uh, penned by Taylor Mack. I'm very excited about that. You have uh, Nathan Lane and Andrea Martin, in that together, and yeah. uh, and I think it kind of has these vibes of Doll's House Part Two. Speaking of which, at yeah. least from what I know of it, um, you know, having this comical send up at framed as a sequel to this play that so many people know. Do you think that with the success of Doll's House Part Two, that more writers are going to be looking at works and sequelizing them? Uh, I don't know if that's going to be much of a trend, and I wouldn't call it a trend once. You know, it's just two coming to Broadway. Right, it's just two, but I, it just gets me thinking, like, will people be taking old classic works and bring them into the now? You know, but make, making... We might making get more of that, but hopefully, yeah. Um, hopefully it won't become an easy target. To, you know what I mean? I hope it will be done smartly every time it's done. And but, but as you said, it's Broadway, it's commercial, and they love something that people have heard of, which is why 
movies are now the, instead of books or plays, it's movies that now everything's being turned into a musical. Two big ones, speaking of which, Tootsie and Beetlejuice are coming. And I don't know how good they're gonna be, but I'm certainly curious to see uh, how that's gonna be turned into. I think Beetlejuice of the two seems the most ripe for a stage adaptation and the fun that you can have. Uh, yeah, I, so I did not see either of these in their out-of-town tryout incarnations, unfortunately. Uh, but from what I have been sort of re- following and reporting on is Beetlejuice does stray from the source material of the movie a pretty good amount. Okay. Um, it, it's focusing the story more on the dynamic between Lydia and Beetlejuice. Mm. Um, Lydia is at the center of the story as opposed to the Maitlands, Adam and Barbara, Alec Baldwin, and Gina Davis mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, so it's with that, and I, I, I personally think that's a smart move because she is, Winona Ryder's Lydia is like the, one of those iconic performances that people remember from that right. movie and has become, you know, a part of pop culture, her and like the Black Veil and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to see how that unfolds, and from what I've seen of the design of it is remarkable. Oh yeah, I can only imagine. Like David Corn's set is yeah. yeah. Crazy. I imagine much yeah. like SpongeBob, it's going to be very visual, very, very colorful, and, uh-huh. so, and so many different elements to, mm-hmm. yeah, to take in. And then uh, Tootsie with uh, Centino Fontana. There we go. There we go. I was like about. To, I was about to say Farino. I was like, no, that's not right. Uh, with Centino Fontana. Uh, this one, this one ought to be interesting. With with that, it's a gender bending going the other way because I've certainly seen uh, a lot recently where women are taking on uh, male roles, much like King Lear, which is oh, coming. with Glenda Jackson. Yeah, mm-hmm. Linda Jackson's going to be taking on King Lear, and so now this is one where a male will now take on a female role. Sure, but it's also part of the story. He's not right, playing right, right, a it's, female. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, it's yeah. part uh-huh. of the story. Yeah. We shall see. Uh, I think it's a very interesting follow-up for David Yazbek after he just won a Tony for The Band's Visit to uh, do something that seems to, at least on paper, stray very much in tone from... Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. But at the same time, like, he did Full Monty, so... Yeah, so, and, so you know, Dirty Brown Scoundrels. So it's not, I'm not saying that he yeah. uh, doesn't have the chops for it by any yeah. means. I'm just saying it, but, it but does feel like David Yazbek whiplash a little bit as, a, as a know, someone following his... Right, yeah. As a follow-up to Band's Visit, yes, it, it's definitely going back. Although Band's Visit was also a movie. No, no one had really ever heard of it, but... So that seems to be his kind of bread and butter is taking these movies and turning them into, uh, you know, I, I would say well-known musicals that that stand on their own apart from the movies. Yeah, so, I think that like he just has a sense like musically of how do you capture the tone of a story that people know through its music. I mean, I think he did that brilliantly with Women on the Verge. Um, not necessarily one of those examples of musicals that stand on their own and that a lot of people know, right. uh, but there were you know some really spectacular moments in that. Um, that oh, he had fleshed an out cast, stage. Yeah. that's for sure. Uh-huh. And uh, pro- probably one of the, the biggest ones uh, that will also be opening is Ain't Too Proud to Beg, which is the Temptations oh, yes. story. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is another one. We kind of started off with talking about these, these jukebox musicals, bio musicals, and this is another one that it seems like it's going to follow in the vein of maybe a Jersey Boys kind of thing, where it's going to be, it's going to incorporate their music, but it's also going to give their backstory right. and, and talk about them uh, as a group. Uh, have you heard anything good or bad about this? Uh, what I will say is this musical has had a pretty long road to Broadway. Uh, 
they've had several pre-Broadway engagements around the country from uh, California and DC. Um, so I'm interested to see, to hear more about the evolution of the musical from all those to Broadway. And this final incarnation that we get um, has had a lot of opportunities to perfect its craft. Right, you know? to, yeah. be, to be fixed, to be tweaked, to be, yeah, all right, yeah. And is there anything in particular that, uh, that you think is gonna be the standout when it comes to the season? And that's plays or musicals, but, but what do you think as we approach Tony, the Tony nominations, what's gonna be the, the biggest buzz you think? Uh, I think we're going to be talking a lot about Hadestown. Um, I think we're going to be talking a lot about uh, what I mentioned, uh, Gary and Hillary and Clinton. Um, we also have a revival of All My Sons Coming with Annette Benning. Uh, which we haven't mentioned, but right. uh, I, I suspect that that will be something that will be discussed a fair amount come award season. Um, and then I'm, I'm very curious about how we were talking about the spectacular nature of Be More Chill's social engagement, mm -hmm. um, but how is that going to translate to, you know, award speculation and how it fits into the Broadway season at large beyond just its fan base? Hmm. Um, so I'm interested to follow that, for sure. I mean, you know, Jared Van Hansen did just with the Tony Awards not too long ago, so I'm Absolutely. not, I'm yeah, not it's, stereotyping, it's not, but yeah. yeah, that will be very interesting because a Tumblr presence does not a Tony campaign make. So in looking at this season, even though we're a little more than halfway through, comparing it to last season, and as far as comparing, you know, is, is Broadway going in, in a good direction? How do the two seasons match up with each other? In terms of last year, and again, I'm speaking with the hindsight that we have now, but you know, you had bands visit sort of dominating the conversation and dominating the awards. I don't know if we have one of those musical frontrunners this season necessarily. I think it's gonna be a little yeah. bit more of an interesting race. But let's not forget Head Over Heels. <laughs> if you're listening, I mean, I mean, Tony nominators. No, no, believe me, I, I want Bonnie Mulligan to get just a special award for best tantrum or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> like somehow, because if, if you haven't seen it, she starts off and it's a rather kind of like typical musical theater voice. And somehow through the, through the story and as her character develops and grows, then so does her voice. And so her voice grows and changes as her character does. And I thought that that was as impressive as the actual voice itself. Yeah. It was very smartly structured all the mm -hmm. way through. Absolutely. Well, I think we have, we have dissected the 2018-19 yeah. <laughs> season. Thank you so much for, for coming back and kind of giving us a preview for, uh, for what the, the Tony Awards and their nominations are gonna, are gonna look like. We'll definitely have you back again in June to kind of we talk about We can see how correct we were. <laughs> right, right, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, there may be a whole new slew of shows or, or shows that we thought were gonna really make it that fizzled out, who knows, who knows, but we'll definitely have you back again. Thank you, Patrick. We certainly covered a lot of ground today, but don't worry, I've got you covered on the website. Check out the show notes for this episode at winmepodcast.com. That's W-I-N-M-I podcast.com. Coming up next week is Tony Howell, and he'll be talking about branding and marketing and better ways for us to promote ourselves online. Until then, keep making it, and I'll see you next time.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.